If you were to write an autobiography, how would you frame your story? How would you frame your story and who would you identify as the most important person? Several years ago, Tim Chester was swimming in the sea in Scotland when he suddenly found himself tiring. Yet when he put his feet down to rest, to his alarm, there was nothing there. He was out of his depth. Have you ever experienced something similar? Concerned, Tim started to swim towards the shore. However, he didn't make it very far or have much progress because he was being moved around by the powerful swell. You see, due to his exhaustion, he had no strength in his limbs. And to make matters worse, he started feeling cold. Which, as many of you know, if you're exhausted, out at sea, that's a really bad sign. And at this point, Tim thought to himself, this is really serious. And the thought entered in mind, he's like, I could drown out here. And he was right. No one was near him. He was so worn out, he could barely move, yet alone swim. And his entire body starting to shut down because he was feeling cold. Well, at this point, Tim tried once more to see if he could put his feet down to rest. And when he did, he felt solid ground under his feet. There was this large, large rock that came all the way almost up to the shoreline. You know how that made Tim feel? Yes, relieved. And you know why? Because in that moment, with his feet on solid ground, he knew he was safe. Now, to be sure, he was still in the water being pushed around by the waves. Yet because his feet were on solid ground, he could make it safely to shore. Now, if, if Tim were to write an autobiography, I bet you that that rock would be mentioned, wouldn't you say? I mean, it's arguably a big part of Tim's story, right? Because without that rock, Tim's story would tragically end out at sea. This morning, we're going to be studying 2 Samuel 22. And as the first verse makes clear, this chapter, the entire chapter, is David's reflection on his entire life. You could say it's an autobiography of sorts. 
The author makes clear we see in 2 Samuel 22 that David penned this song of deliverance after the Lord had delivered David from all of his enemies, which includes Saul. Yet as we're about to see, David does not frame his story around himself. Indeed, as this chapter makes clear, David isn't even the most important person in his story. You know who is? God. Commentator Hans Hertzberg described it best. He writes this. He said, David's history could have been narrated as that of a great and powerful king. This chapter, however, is concerned that it should be understood as the action of a great and powerful God. And you know how David most frequently describes this powerful God in 2 Samuel 22? He speaks of God as a rock. Indeed, that phrase, the Lord is my rock, is the refrain of this entire song. Not only does this refrain open the song in verse 1, but it's repeated in the middle and towards the end. For example, in verse 1, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. Then again in verse 32, for who is God besides the Lord and who is a rock except our God? And then towards the end in verse 47, David says, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. Furthermore, as we're going to see in a couple weeks, when we get to the next chapter, chapter 23, in chapter 23, verse 3, David speaks of God also as the rock, not only for himself, but for all of Israel. You see, faith, similar to Tim Chester, similar, for David, the most important person in his story is not himself, but it's a rock and that's the Lord. Faith does not, uh, excuse me, faith, David does not frame his story around himself or his accomplishments. Indeed, David is not the centerpiece of his story. No, the central and most important person in David's story, according to David, is the Lord his rock. And what I want you to see, Faith, is that David just didn't pen this song for kicks. A song that actually we see is almost repeated verbatim in Psalm 18. No, David wrote this psalm, and the author of 2 Samuel intentionally placed it at the end of this book so that God's people, the readers of this chapter, the people who have read all of David's life up until this point, they would read this psalm and they would follow suit, follow David and make God the rock of their lives too. You see, friend, David's song of deliverance, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to do that, and that's to make the Lord your rock. This, I want to argue, is the action 
that this passage presses us to make. Christian, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, David is exhorting God's people of all generations to make the Lord your rock. Because you see, friend, the reality is all of us are leaning. All of us are standing on something to be the rock of our lives. As David identifies in the first four verses of this chapter, your rock, that, your rock is that which you seek for shelter. Your rock is that which you run to for refuge. Right? Your rock is your fortress. Your rock is that which you deem worthy to be praised. And what's that for you? Now, I, I know, and rightfully so, as God's people, we would want to say, yes, the Lord is my rock. But I know in my life, in my experience, is that there are many times as we go through seasons of life and we experience the swell and the waves of this world that many times we don't choose to make the Lord our rock but something else. So here's maybe a better question to ask for you to find this out is, what is that one thing, Christian, that if taken out from underneath you immediately, you'd feel lost and off balance. That will reveal what is your rock in the moment. You know, if, if the events of the past two years have done anything, I think one of the things they've done is they've helped clear the clutter and allow us to see what it is we're truly running to for our refuge. I think the circumstances of this past two years have helped reveal what we believe will keep us from drowning. And what have you been running to? Mindless entertainment? Alcohol? Modern medicine? Your family, a spouse, a child, a romantic relationship. Maybe finances or a job. We're, we're, all, we're all putting our weight on something. We're all leaning on something. You see, your, your rock is what you live for. So what is it for you? As we've seen in our study of First and Second Samuel, David was a man who actually experienced firsthand many of the difficulties we just simply fear. Right? 
And out of every adversity, David's invitation to you and to me is to make the Lord your rock. Find your hope, joy, comfort, and your purpose for living in Him. So, so in the few minutes we have this morning, here's the question I want us to consider, and that is why? Why should we make the Lord our rock? Well, I believe that when we look closely at this chapter, David beautifully articulates three compelling reasons why we ought to do this. Again, the main refrain is the Lord is my rock and it's an invitation. And I think as we study his words carefully, there are three compelling reasons why we ought to do this. However, this morning, we're simply going to look at the first. You're welcome. And the first is this. And that is, make the Lord your God your rock. Number one, because he is mighty to save. Let's look at these first 20 verses of this passage. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. That's 2 Samuel 22, page 274 in that paperback Bible. And follow along as I read. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So this is why it's probably best to understand this towards the latter part of his life. It's not just he was delivered from Saul, but all of his enemies. And then, as I mentioned, we almost see the exact same chapter in Psalm 18. But this is what we read now. He said this, verse 2. And notice how the mise, the possessiveness of David in his speech. He says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. Notice David has gone all in believing that the Lord is his rock, isn't he? Notice what he says in verse 4. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. Now notice how he describes his enemies and the condition of his heart. And more importantly, notice how David is feeling in these moments when he's overwhelmed and being pursued by his enemies. Verse 5, For the waves of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry came to his ears. Now notice 
what David does next. David's going to describe something, and I want you to think, as we, as we read carefully the vivid imagery that he uses, does what he describes sound like anything else, another significant event in the Bible, okay? Notice what he says. Verse 8. Then the earth reeled and rocked, and the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. Can you think of a time in Israel's history when that happened? And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. Um, last month, my family went to the Lincoln Presidential Library in Springfield, Illinois. And because we homeschool our four kids, it counted as a school day. And here's proof to show. There we are. Right. Now, when it comes to museums, uh, like Jim Gaffigan, I can only pretend to be interested for about a couple of hours. However, there was something that genuinely caught my attention at the Lincoln Presidential Library. I don't know if you know this or not, but according to the Lincoln Presidential Library, the Emancipation Proclamation freed no one. Did you know this? The library actually went out of its way to make this point. According to the library, slaves were already free in the North when Lincoln made the proclamation, and it did not apply to the states in the South. It freed no one. Now, in contrast, as this passage testifies, God is mighty to free captives. More than mere words, 
as this text makes known, God actually acts and steps in to deliver his people. Notice, David in these verses, you know what he's describing? What, do you want to guess what event he's describing in Israel's history? Yes. What else happened around Mount Sinai? The drawing out of waters? Ferris, Bueller, anyone? Anyone here? Okay, the Exodus. Yes, Exodus, do you agree with me? Yes, okay. He's describing the Exodus. Just consider the phrases he uses. Verse 8, he talks about trembling and quaking. We see this in Exodus 19, when Sinai was covered with smoke like a furnace. Then verses 10 through 12, there's dark clouds. A dark cloud covered Mount Sinai, and Moses approached God where there was darkness. Verses 13 and 15, lightning and thunder. We see this also in Exodus 19. The people saw lightning and heard thunder, and when they did, they trembled in fear. And then again, verse 14, where it says that he uttered his voice. Right? David is recounting, and then with the many waters, David is recounting this significant event in Israel's history. He's recounting the Exodus, and the question is why? Why is David doing this? What's going on here? Well, through this intentional imagery, some think David is equating the Exodus to his own experience of deliverance. That is, David believes his own situation exhibits the same glorious manifestations of God as the Exodus. And this is very certainly a viable understanding of this text. However, I think something else is going on. As other commentators have pointed out, I think David vividly describes God's mighty salvation during the Exodus because although it did not happen to him, it did happen for him. You see, the freedom David enjoyed, the relationship he had with God, his identity as God's king were all founded on the Exodus. For that was the moment God liberated Israel and made them his people. You see, in that moment at the Red Sea, in a very real sense, David was drawn out of the waters because Israel was drawn out of the waters. David was rescued from his enemies and brought into a spacious place because Israel was. Indeed, David lived in the land because of that great moment. What I'm getting at is David is recounting God's salvation for his people of which David belongs. Okay? And this is what I want you to see, Faith. In the opening section of this chapter, I believe David is saying something rather important and something that's very instructive for us today. Namely, what we see in David here is that whenever he felt overwhelmed by life or entangled by death, as he says, 
he looked back to God's mighty act of salvation, the Exodus. That is, David would confront his feelings in that moment with the fact of God's salvation. Do you see this? The Exodus reminded him that God created his people and he would not abandon his promises. That he, this reminded him that God is mighty to save. And I believe there's an important application for us here. And that is taking our cues from David, who's inviting us to make the Lord our rock because he is mighty to save. I think the application for us is that whenever we as well are overwhelmed with life's entanglements. Like David, in the moment, we ought to confront our feelings of overwhelmedness, if that's a word, with the facts of God's salvation for us. The Exodus was the great saving event that defined Israel for us today. The great saving event that defines us is the cross and resurrection of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? You see, faith, as great as Israel's deliverance from Pharaoh in Egypt, as great as that might have been, God has delivered us from a far greater taskmaster, and that is sin. Friend, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but the Bible clearly teaches that we all are sinners by nature and by choice. As sons of Adam, we all come into this world as God's enemies. None of us enter life neutral towards God. No, we reject his rightful rule and authority over our lives and we instead choose to live for ourselves. And I think that is a very self-evident statement. And the Bible is clear that our sin, our rejection of God as the rightful king in our lives, our sin earns us something, and that is God's just wrath. And, and I love does compel me to say this to you, friend, that in your sinful state, you are under God's wrath. And woe to the one who still dies while in his sin. Why? Because there awaits for that person an eternity of God's wrath for their sin in hell. And what I want you to see, friend, is that due to your rebellion, which places you under God's wrath, you need to be saved from God. And no amount of righteous actions or good deeds or behavior or helping at a soup kitchen or helping old ladies across the street or speaking a kind word here, none of that is sufficient to place you out from under God's wrath. You cannot save yourself. Which means you need to be saved by someone other than yourself. You need to be saved by God. Scripture says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. 
So for your sins to be forgiven, you need a perfect sacrifice. And friend, the glorious news of Scripture is that it is exactly what you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, in this moment, you might feel the weight and the guilt of your sin. God's wrath to you right now does not feel abstract but real. If that's the case, praise Him. If you feel that weight, if you feel that guilt, if you feel that wrath, good. Because God wants to use this, this moment, to direct your eyes to the provision for your sin, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Through His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ has saved all who would trust in him. Friend, Jesus suffered and died on the cross to pay the penalty you are owed for your sin. Then three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death and proving himself to be who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And before I go any further, I must ask all of us, what have you done about your sinful state? There is not a more important question. You know why? Because eternity hangs in the balance. I would plead with you. You know, I prayed this morning. I can't save you. I can plead with you all I want. I can't do it. But God can, and my prayer is he would. That you, through the Spirit's work in your life, he would open your eyes to see Jesus and trust him alone. Because friend, you can either go to hell clinging to your own righteousness, or you can go to heaven clinging to the perfect righteousness of Jesus. That is, owning and confessing your sin to God that you're a sinner, and then believing that Christ's death and resurrection is sufficient to save you and make you fit for heaven. This is why it's good news. Jesus does all the work, and that salvation is received simply by faith. Have you done that, friend? This text, as David at the end of his life, and as he's experiencing the despair and the difficulty of all the difficult circumstances, he's recounting in his heart and mind how his God is mighty to save by reflecting back on what God has done to save his people. God has not only delivered his people from Egypt, but friend, in Christ, he has delivered you, Christian, from the punishment you are owed for your sin. And here is why I want to say we ought to make the Lord God, the rock of our lives. You know why? Because all the other things, and David knows this. David knows this. As this psalm testifies, all the other things we look to, to lean on, to find our security, our hope, our comfort, all the things we often live for because we believe it's going to give us the security and peace we need, they can be taken from us like that. In an instant. 
Do you realize this, friend? Your athletic career, your job, the, the reputation of your good name, taken from you like that. Money can be taken from you. You can lose a spouse and your children. Beauty fades, health deteriorates, careers dissolve, gone. However, and this is why we sing, this is why we gather together on Sunday morning, there is one thing though in this universe that can never be taken away from you. And you know what that is? It's the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? And you know why that's the case? It's because through his resurrection, Christ has defeated life's greatest storm, and that's death. Our God is mighty to save. So here's where I just want to press in, Christian. I want to invite you Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, that when you are overwhelmed with life, when you feel entangled by the trials of this life, I would encourage you to confront your feelings with the fact of God's salvation. As David writes in verse 7, remember that your God hears your cries. What good news is that? Never forget that you are his. And like David says there in verse 19, in Christ, he delights in you, Christian. Friend, no other rock can do that for you. There is no other rock that will die in your place and give you a perfect righteousness so you can have a relationship with the one true and living God. There is no other rock who can withstand life's ultimate storm, death. Jesus is that only rock that defeated death and satisfied God's wrath for your sin. You see, how do we make the Lord our rock? Well, you first have to see and come to the place to recognize all these little rocks, they're but pebbles and they're insufficient. We must turn from these smaller pebbles, these weak pebbles. Many of things are good things. Turn from them and recognize and confess, I've been wrongly putting my hope in them. God, I turn from them and I'm going all in on you. You who are mighty to save. You know, one commentator I read this week could have just summarized, what is it? Like 16 verses here when David recounts the Exodus. He could have just said, God intervenes. It would have been a lot shorter. <laughs> but he doesn't. In vivid imagery, as we read, he recounts God's action. I mean, his anger, his strength, his power. And all this was displayed as he made for himself a people and brought to his own. And I think David is recounting this as he counsels his heart in light of the despair he experiences. Next week, we'll examine David's two additional well-articulated reasons why we ought to make the Lord our rock. But to close, I, I want to invite you to do one thing this week. 
And I, and I want you to consider what it would look like for you to not only frame, but to live your life around God and not yourself. Like really, like what would that really look like if God was the center rather than your wants, wishes, and desires? What, what would it look like if when my feet hit the floor in the morning, my chief motivation was to bring honor to my great God and Savior, my rock, rather than get my way in what I want accomplished? And to indeed to think, what actions could you take to make God and his glory your chief concern? My, my prayer for us is, is what our song of response is going to be, and that is that Christ would indeed be our sure and steady anchor. Let's pray.